Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right. Happy Friday, everybody. Another week has gone by. And I'm just retweeting this out for everybody to go yeah, laugh. Sorry, go for it. Cheers, cheers to everybody. I'm doing sober September, so I'm not drinking today, which is uh, difficult to understand. But cheers. I don't like it. Salud, salud. Cheers. A little Moscow mule on my end. Oh, nice. I love the mule. Actually, you know, the Moscow mule. I had tonic and lime here. Ooh. Don't forget the zinc. You got you to yeah, you you put a little capsule zinc. of zinc in there. You get a little extra immunity protection. Jackson you mean alcohol number one, quinine number two, and a little bit of zinc, a little zinc capsule? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a good spell. It makes all three I'm of them. I'm not sure how they <laughs> line out there in the priority, yeah. but they're all in the mixture. So I love it. I love it. And and just a reminder that that the four scoundrels on this call are neither doctors. Uh, nor providing any kind of investment advice of any kind. <laughs> or medical purely, advice. Yeah, or medical advice. is <laughs> purely for entertainment purposes only. You shouldn't be listening to four guys drinking on a Friday afternoon if you're looking for investment advice. Having said that, I think we got a pretty good guest today, guys. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> Extra pretty special. accomplished individual. Yeah. Um, so where do we want to start? Uh, Tom, you want to just dive in and, and sort of start with your arc the brief version, maybe? 
Mm, they mean how I got from uh, being born to where I am now. Yeah, something like that. Going from <laughs> in, in the one seconds or I was born. Okay, well, in my investment world started uh, when I was 12 years old delivering papers. I made $10 a week, so I bought a mutual fund. It was a Fidelity mutual fund, actually. Front-end loaded, high cost, terrible investment. I learned a lot about markets going up and down. Went through a 73-74 bear market as the junior and senior years of college. So I got close up a view of a market going down nearly 50% on the S&P, I think. And uh, so I got out in the real world as a chemical engineer. Some guys at the, the table for lunch said, hey, uh, you know, let's talk stocks. It's kind of fun. You know, you can invest on the side and all. So I started doing that and started a stock account that was successful. I eventually said, you know, if the stock market goes down like it did in 73, 74, this is not going to be pretty. How about if I learn how to trade commodities? So I started doing that. Took four years for that to get to break even. Fifth year was profitable. Uh, that required a lot of patience and engineering yeah, background. How did you get through that patience? Well, just four one, years one of thing small was, losses, learning. What what was? There were it was small accounts, so small losses. You know, almost by definition, because I didn't have a large account in those days. But what you ended up doing for me is I logged everything. Being the good little engineer that I am, uh, log in where you got in, where you got out, your thoughts at the time, what indicators you used. Try to learn from it, and I always called it. You know, I just got through paying like $18,000 to get a uh, chemical engineering degree. Uh, the College of Trading has tuition too, and I figured I was just paying some of it. And uh, every year I got closer to break even, so that was also a uh, positive trend. I was losing less, so that was good. And uh, that kind of bought me the patience to just keep pursuing and keep figuring it out. And I always felt like I learned something and tried to improve and tried to improve. And I could see that it was helping and it gave me the patience. And then from there, I, I started managing money on the side. I actually was stayed as a chemical engineer and I was actually, there was friends that were asking me to manage their money and you could do that back in the old days. I'm not sure it would ever happen today, but um, you know, just the, 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 the start in your basement story and it gets to be big. And I finally do the math. And I said, hey, you know, my two partners at the time, I said, you know, if I if I calculate this out, I'm making this with benefits. If I look at what our fee schedule is and all that, we could pay me the same amount of that I'm making now. I'll just go full time and I'll raise enough money for you guys to join me. And that's what we did. And then Can I, I back it up a little bit? Because yeah. yeah. I'm actually dying to know. So you've got a paper route. You're earning 10 bucks a week. What triggered you to take that money and put it in, into a mutual? I mean, that would have been a very early, that would have been right around the time when mutual funds were just becoming, you know, known, yeah, right? So exactly. how did that happen? A uh, salesman came by to try to sell my father, the postman, this load fund as his spiel of, sales or whatever. My father listened. I decided since I had some savings that I would listen too. My father did not buy the mutual fund. I did. Amazing. And that would have been, yep. I mean, from 66 to 73 was a reasonably, you know, good period in the market, right? So that would have been a, a time when everyone was feeling relatively optimistic about investing in stocks and, mm -hmm. um, 
And then you had the opportunity with, you know, a, a very small amount very early on to yep. learn this valuable lesson that markets don't always go mm-hmm. up, which of course, anyone who's invested in markets in the last 10 years has yet to discover, right? Mm-hmm. Um, These are gray hairs over here. <laughs> what, what, little, what little there are of them. The ones that are left. Yeah. Um, the ones that are left. Uh, yeah, I've been through 73, 74. I've been through the, um, of course, the 87 crash. That was a fun day. And then we did the, um, I did the, uh, the 2008 real estate debacle, the tech bursting bubble, uh, went through COVID last year. Um, so I've had a lot of pretty major bear markets that I've had to live through and still trading. Yeah. As a manager of, of other people's money, in your experience, how valuable or how, how critically important is it to demonstrate an ability to successfully navigate those really acute types of crises, like the 1987 crash, for example, you were successful in that. To what extent would that have defined a career and really accelerated the trajectory, do you think? It it accelerates it, uh, but strangely, uh, I would argue that if you want to raise a lot of money quickly, the hot track record always seems to draw all the flies, you know, they're, they're out of out of the woodwork at you. And you'll lose it just as quick as you go into your next bear market and or next drawdown on your equity curve. If you want a business like mine that lasted 28 years, you have to be interesting enough to be interesting, but don't go beyond that because you want to be as stable as you can possibly be. You sort of want to lull your clients to a, a comfort level that they're, they're comfortable with. And as long as you're doing a positive return a lot of times you tend to hold on to the assets but you start you know i don't care what clients tell you they'll say oh i can i can take a 20 percent drawdown hell no they can't take a 20 percent drawdown <laughs> at at seven percent eight percent they're on the phone to you calling already and uh, all nervous about what goes on i sure don't miss that now in retirement <laughs> i don't miss it at all uh for those i get a lot of new traders coming to me and say i'm i've had a great two, three year track record. I'm thinking going in the money management business and I immediately try to talk them out of it. Yeah. <laughs> o- OPM and uh, other people's money. Yeah, yeah. Other people's money. It is yeah. the interesting thing about it that I've noticed over the years. And my first book was kind of an attempt to do something about that. It miserably failed, I think, but panic proof investing was a, was a goal. The goal of that book was to try to give it to a retail client in the effort that they could somehow learn more about being a good investor. Because in my opinion, the money manager is just an extension of what the investor, I mean, the investor is giving you the cash to manage or putting in an account so you, with your power of attorney to manage it. So you're in charge of that money. But the ultimate power lies with the client. They can always pull it from you at the worst of times, right at a drawdown, they'll miss the next run up. I mean, you look at all these great Money managers, including Trendstat, I mean, I've made equity highs many, many, many times. Why would clients, if clients had just stayed with that, they would have enjoyed that whole curve, but they never do. They come and go. And you sit there and you calculate what's called a dollar-weighted return, which is the total dollars in versus the total dollars out. And these clients, on average, are losing money. And yet, I'm, by law, presenting a time-weighted return which is required in my disclosure documents and all that, and I'm making new equity highs and doing just fine, 
and I'm one of my biggest clients at, at the, you know, at the end when I shut it down and, and yet clients are coming and going and, and uh, I'm making new equity highs and they're losing money. And it's just because they give you money at the top of your equity curve and they take it out at the bottom, which is really ridiculous. What's the Magellan fund story again? In terms what of money weighted rate of return, was it the Magellan Fund? It was. I think Mike, you've talked about this before, or maybe Adam has. Yeah, uh, no, there's, there's, a f- a, there's a few examples. Oh, of, that's uh, of exactly uh, what Tom's Magellan did. Exactly, they did a study yeah. of their investors, and yeah. the, the actual investors had lost money, but Magellan was was one of the top performing mutual funds over a ten year period, and mm-hmm. that was just in spades. What I'm talking about. It's it's just. Kind there, of sad. Other, so, how do you get investors, way? you know, to yeah. do to do a better job of giving their money to money managers? That's what I attempted to do with Panic Proof Investing. I don't know if people <laughs> really read it and took it to heart. Maybe it would help. But I whatever. think Kahneman has taught us that even if you do know, you're still going to make the, the human mistakes, right? But I, I have a, an interesting observation when I look at at trend followers, traders, and their track records all the way back to the '70s to now. Mm-hmm. And the, the observation is that back then, the volatility of the underlying strategies is running at 30 vol. And today we're running at an eight vol. <clears throat> and I wonder if that is a learning from managing your own money, trying to get those high returns, high volatility, and over time realizing that people can't handle the volatility and start targeting lower, vol- lower volatility strategies because you're managing other people's money. Do you find, like, did you transition from taking more risk to less risk when, when managing people's money? Absolutely. Uh, I never really was super high, but some of the early programs and futures, for instance, had plenty of sizzle when they wanted to sizzle. They were never going to be up there in the number one in the industry or anything in a good market. But uh, there was times where I was pretty near the top in down markets where there was drawdowns going on in the industry and I'm posting a positive return and there's other guys down 20. Uh, yeah, that, I would attract a lot of attention then. But people didn't tend to pull, pull the trigger still because I'm on a drawdown or I'm not, I've got a boring return. I mean, one of the reasons I almost didn't make it into new market wizards back in the, in the day is Jack looked at my track record and said, you know, I've looked at his track record. It's kind of boring. You know, he, he wanted the sizzle to get the book, yeah. uh, you know, have a lot of sto- flashy stories about traders that made gazillions of dollars. And it, my story at, from the outside looking in wasn't that compelling. But once he started talking to me, then he he's, oh, wow, Tom's a little different from a lot of these other guys I've talked to. So it worked out in the end and it got in the book. But um, yeah, it's it was, an age old challenge. Um as you say, like you attract your attention when you're putting up massive numbers, when you're at the yep. top of the boards in, you know, absurdly short timeframes, right? Mm-hmm. The, you had the best returns this quarter or, you know, oh. the best returns this month or something absolutely ludicrous in terms of any sort of signal to noise on whether you've got skill. So you've got this phenomenon where you need to stand out the way that you typically stand out is by being at the top of the boards. But in order to be at the top of the boards, you've got to run hot. And by running hot, that also means that unless you've got an absurdly high sharp ratio, like a you know three or four sharp ratio, then you're also going to be at the bottom of the boards um, on occasion. And you're going mm-hmm. to be in drawdown territory, which, as you say, is going to send many investors 
running for the hills at precisely the wrong time. <laughs> exactly. Right? In in your 28 years of running OPM, did you come close to converging on a solution to that? That was the book I tried. Uh, the The last solution that I did was an interesting story in itself. Uh, there was this gentleman that was running a mutual fund timing program out in California, and he wanted to retire. So he had heard by way of uh, one of his portfolio managers of this guy, Tom Basso, over in Scottsdale, that did timing, did it well, and was also doing futures and a lot of other things. And he was at a stage in his life where he might like to have a ready-made fund to uh, put in all of his different investment strategies. And so, you know, he, he and I talked, and it was called Market Math. I bought the firm and took all the clients over, and we went through the agony of getting all the paperwork, you know, as we know from – or maybe we don't know. You guys are in the Cayman, mm -hmm. so you may not have that burden. Oh, we're painfully you know, aware. Yeah, we it's, are, yeah. <laughs> it's really, really just uh, unbelievable. So we got all that done, and off we go. So you know, I'm running market math with about $60 million or so, and I've, I'm the largest investor in the fund. Uh, and so off we go. We've got a fee schedule that is – one in 10, I think it was, where everybody else was two and 20. So I was like dirt cheap, no excuse there to not buy the fund. I went in uh, over the subsequent year and uh, we were running, God, let me see if I can remember them all, two different currency programs, two different strategies and futures that were oriented towards me. Another one that was for wizard trading that we had taken over and that we were just integrating, keeping their track record alive for them. And that was for Louis Lukak uh, back in the days. And then I was doing some commodity option strategy and I was doing mutual fund sector timing all within one fund. And <laughs> as you could imagine, all those strategies are going to balance each other out. You're going to get a little bit more of a, an all-weather type of thing where, you know, I don't care whether the stock market's going up, mutual fund timing is doing well. You know, if corn's doing well, maybe I've got a corn option on in the option strategy. You know, it just it doesn't make any difference. So I, we had about an average of a 15, 14, 13%-ish type of return in the teens, fairly tame drawdowns of any kind. I went out and I tried to start talking to uh, pool operators because I knew a lot of those from my futures days. And their answer was, well, you got this mutual fund timing in here. That's securities. We don't do that. I, I don't know. I don't want to get involved with having to deal with the SEC and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So then I said, all right, well, let's see. How about if I do fund of funds? I'll, I'll go to New York City. There's a lot of those folks there. I would go from Scottsdale on a Sunday night and I would come back to Scottsdale on a Friday afternoon and I would do appointments from the time breakfast hit all the way through dinner and lunches and appointments in between. I counted 150 appointments I did, many of which I would take their own track record and market math's track record and I would blend it in at 5% or something. And I say, here's your return to risk before. You add this in, here's your return to risk after. It's mm -hmm. improved. And they'd look at me and, yeah, I hear you and I understand the math, but mm, I just, I, I don't, we, we don't know what to do with you. 
You know, we don't know which box right to that. put you in and all that's that stuff. That's sitting close to home. So, God, it's way too close to home. Oh, yeah. Can we stop this and right now? It's actually so, depressing. I know. Is it painful? You can have a sip of your drink. Okay. Um, <laughs> what ended up happening was after the 150 appointments, I raised, are you ready? <laughs> oh, no. I must be a terrible salesman. I don't know. I got nothing. And I, I said, okay, hmm. I'm spending a hundred thousand a year to comply with accounting and legal rules. I don't really need the money. Why am I still a money manager? Yeah. <laughs> so I became a retired money manager and I've smiled ever since. And, uh, it's just, you know, you just kind of, you look, and these are institutional guys, and you think they would understand the logic of it, but they don't. And so, you raise a really interesting point, though, right? Like, like being in a box that allows institutions to slide you into a preconceived category is so important, and yet being confined to a box necessarily reduces the amount of diversity of strategies and instruments and markets that you can bring to bear in the in the fund or or in the you know whatever vehicle you're using exactly so you're having to and I was a partnership substantially I, I had a market math was a partnership limited partnership people had a rough time with that and you had to have uh, a little bit of the partnership you have a the problem of uh, transparency people can you know, get get it sort of broken down inside the partnership when you get the accounting and all that. Actually, I don't know. You, are you guys familiar with the standpoint story? That yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, with, yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, well, Eric I'm, yeah. I'm chairman. I'm chairman of standpoint funds. Yeah. And uh, Eric came to me. I don't know. Gosh, it had to be uh, two and a half years ago, or I, I lose track of time. And we have this lunch that lasts four hours. And he lays this all out of how about if we, I'm thinking of doing something where I take stocks on the one side and I'll just get that exposure using ETFs or something. And then I'll do the other side using global markets in everything from currencies to metals to energy to all this stuff. And I'll design something that's very tax efficient and very diversified. It'd be one of the most diversified funds you could imagine. But we're going to make it a mutual fund so it's a security and that makes it easy for everybody to use it without having to deal with all of these moving parts. And I said, Eric, I tried to look at that back when I was still doing market math, but that that was going to cost me a half a million dollars to put the investment company of Act 40 Act together. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the lawyer's that you use for that type of stuff is like, they're the $500 an hour guys. And uh, he said, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and I said, when he outlined it all and told me the investment strategy he was going to use, I said, you just invented Trendstat, my old firm, 2.0. <laughs> that's what you just did. And I want to know what you're doing. I'm interested in this. So I'm now an investor in it. And I raised, uh, about 98% of the capital to start the firm. Okay, uh, I did it. Great. I did it in, I did it in five days with some phone calls and I had all the money raised that we needed. 
Uh, just from okay, Tom, you're, you're officially an advisor for our firm. <laughs> uh, stay, stay tuned I after the commercial. I don't no conflict there. <laughs> Did I tell you I'm retired? Yeah. I no, that's definitely retired. had a lot of conversations with Eric uh, recently yeah. about and, his and shift so, from, from longboard to standpoint and the, the whole philosophy change and trying to provide a an integrated solution. So, yeah, I, uh, he's got, I he's feel got his two, journey. Yeah, two things going for him. Uh, we, I guess you could argue because I'm the, the chairman, but we have two things going for us, I think, versus market math and my beating my head against the wall back in those days. One is that it's a security. So we spent the upfront money to get all the, the extensive, difficult legal work done. I mean, it's massive. And the second thing is the the whole tracking industry back in the days of, uh, of Trendstat, my firm, were just trying to get into computerization. And there was a lot of you know people faxing in their track records to these central depositories and trying to put out uh, handwritten, I mean, or, I mean printed uh, newsletters that would go out in the mail once a month to various people. There, was, there wasn't this, uh, you know, go onto the internet and, and slice and dice the industry, you know, 500 different ways. So one of the advantages that I think Standpoint has these days is you can look at other sort of, you know, globally diversified funds. I think Milburn's got one and, you know, there's, there's a few others out there. Uh, and I knew Milburn back in the days when we were just, you know, currency and commodity traders and they've, gone on into you know adding a lot of security stuff too but i think there's a lot more ability to pick benchmarks that match up with what you're doing better so that you can actually look good at least when compared to other folks that are doing similar things you don't have to compare yourself to the you know the the high tech stock jockey that you know has found the penny stock that's just did 2000 you know percent return or something and try to compete with that. So I, I think it's a little easier in that regard. But um, still, uh, starting from zero, you know, running up to eighty-five million now. Uh, yesterday, I guess it was. Um, you know, they're they're rolling. I'm very proud of Eric and those guys. I mean, they've been doing a great job. Board meeting yeah. this next week should oh, be a I fun board he's, meeting. He's learned a lot of lessons from his previous gig that, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's at his age, I was like at that level of his career at his age to do, to realize what went wrong, what, what the audience wants and then do a, a complete shift and start from zero. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking about him yesterday. I'm like, how did he like, convince his wife that he was doing this again? He's it was not incredible. Married. Oh, he's, he's not, not married. married. That's why. Well, oh, that'll God. Do it. Okay, that's a trick. I got to divorce my wife. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Strange so watching. Is, is the door locked? <laughs> is the door locked? <laughs> Check the door. But you know, kudos to him for for giving you know putting something together that the audience wants. Yeah. And, and and I uh, think he also he a and I approach too. He and I have also had a lot of uh, you know sort of in depth conversations about life not just money management. And uh, we, we love our lunches. They usually go on for two, three hours because we, uh, he's like a, maybe the son I never had or something uh, or a, a younger brother or something, you know, and we get going and there's not too many people he can start throwing statistical terms like he can with multi-syllable words. 
that could understand what he's talking about, but I can. And uh, so we have, we both can speak at a very high level of uh, math and investment technique and understand what each other is saying. But uh, he has learned a lot of lessons and I've also thrown in my two cents on life and trying to structure what he does over a very strategic plan. And uh, I think he's taken a lot of that to heart and he's he's nailing it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tom, you should, uh, we just wrote a piece called stacking returns that deals uh-huh. exactly in that idea of multi-asset securities and like layering CTA yep. and global macro on top. And mm-hmm. I- I'll give it away. Uh, product four is the, uh, standpoint blend X fund. So you should, <laughs> you should take a look. I actually sent it to Eric to give us before publishing to give us his opinions, but yeah. it, it's exactly addressing how do you give the, the the world what they need, which is that 60-40, and how do you force them to stack some non-correlated alpha on top? Yeah, and now you, you can do that, as you mentioned. There's a series of 40-act funds that provide that yeah. level of capital efficiency that didn't exist two years ago. And now and, we can do that. So, And they have an NAV. It's just in the paper or on the yeah. quote screen. And people don't have to know that behind it is this multitude of like 75 different markets over here and something like, uh, you know, three or four different ETFs that are covering the equity exposure and all these different strategies going on with both and rebalancing periodically. And all that is taken care of internally and you get one number at the end. Mm-hmm. And so your taxes are just, you know, you bought, if you sold it, you got a capital gain. If you, you know, if there's a dividend and you get a 1099, it's easy. And I think that's finally where, you know, the success has come in standpoints, uh, you know, uh, business because of the fact that they packaged it right. And the, uh, and I think also I was on the bleeding edge when I was doing my multi, uh, multi-strategy, single manager fund. There was maybe one other firm that was struggling and they didn't get anywhere either. And nowadays it's a lot more common. So now people kind of know what to do it. There is a box now for those folks. So I think uh, I might've paved the way a little bit way back when, after they started hearing it for a decade, maybe they started thinking, man, maybe we ought to look at this finally. But I was long gone at that point, smiling away into retirement. So uh, so I, I volunteered. I mean, I said, uh, you know, if you want me down the board or uh, they said, hey, you raised most of the money. You know all the investors <laughs> in the firm. We want you to be the chairman <laughs> so you can run the board meetings and all that. And so it's fun. Well, fantastic, fantastic. What, so it's got, a great or, way to be in a money management industry with not having to get up in the morning. It's like being a grandparent. It is, it is exactly. <laughs> All these, we call them, you know, another guy on the board and myself, we call the whole management team at Standpoint the kids. Right. That's what we call them. That's yeah. their collective name. I wonder how the kids are dealing with this. Yeah. Like they're you, that's about something the, wanted to ask, right? Yeah. Well, some of them, some of them could be our grandchildren, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're that young. So as you think, I think we'll get into the sort of the more do-it-yourself stuff. I want to yep. save that to the end because you've got mm-hmm. enjoy the ride and the programs you do there. And, mm-hmm. and we can get into the, um, some of the, the nuts and bolts of investing. Mm-hmm. But on the, on the side of delegating uh, some of the investment uh, decisions, whether you're an allocator, an individual investor, or a registered investment advisor, what are some of the, what are some of the tips that you would provide or some, some of the guidance that you would provide for those out there who are looking at a 60-40 portfolio where 40% of the portfolio is earning less than 1% and the other 60% is, 
you know, equities, which are going to have, you know, have certain, you know, or discounted cash flow assets could be highly valued. They probably are, will face, you know, some, some volatility over, over time. Mm-hmm. What do you look for in a manager? What kind of style do you look for? What, what, what are your, what are your thoughts there? Well, right now with a, with a long run up the, in the stock market, um, could it keep going? Sure. I mean, in a market, as my wife reminds me of saying all the time, the market will do what the market will do. Uh, and so all of these markets can can do strange things. They can do them for years. But if you look at bonds in particular, which is the a critical part of the 60-40 mix that was so traditional with uh, financial advisors over the years, that 40% now is yielding low single digits at best, and if it's a short maturity, maybe less than a half a percent or something. And yet, if you have interest rates go up at all, those bonds are going to get killed. So the return potential is like single digit, really low. And the risk of bonds, you could lose 10, 20, 30% on a long-term bond uh, before it recovers back. If you hold it to maturity and the company stays alive and everything, blah, 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 yeah, you still might make your interest rate all the way through into maturity. But if inflation were to fire up and it seems to be trying to, you don't want a 1% return locked in because that's going to be losing money to inflation. So bonds are a sucker's bet for the next decade or so in my mind. And I know Eric agrees with me on that one. Um, on, on things like real estate, I mean, we're just building a huge bubble again, just like almost we did in 2008, and nobody seems to be noticing it. Uh, some of the insanity I've seen around here, I've liquidated, I didn't liquidate it. My wife, who's the real estate expert, liquidated all of our uh, rental properties that we owned uh, this last year. So uh, we're trading everything in the liquid markets now, not in the real estate. Uh, now, whether or not that proves to be good timing or not, uh, mm-hmm. you know, who knows, but you don't want to, with real estate being such an illiquid asset, it's kind of hard to deal with rental properties and, and then they have moratoriums due to COVID and all that garbage. It's, it, it really gets tough. So you look at other assets. Uh, I mean, stocks are going to go through their ups and downs and we've seen in my lifetime, uh, geez, if you, if you take 20 something percent as your benchmark and, and worse, uh, gosh, must be five, six, seven times now I've seen mm-hmm. them. And some of them, I'm tech stocks in the tech bubble went down 80%. That's a pretty big hit to take. And I don't think a lot of people who have lived through it or st- they just turn off the brain and don't study history realize that that's, that's kind of the risk you're taking on if you just buy and hold a, a strategy like that. And so for the advisors out there that are trying to give – give their clients something to think about. I have no problems with having a portion of a person's investment in, um, in stocks. I think I shy away from bonds these days. I just don't think it's going to add value over the long run. It may stabilize your money, but I'd rather be in money markets if that were the case, just to stabilize, but you're not going to get much of a return. Uh, beyond that, I think you got to attack risk. You know, over the years, people have, like my father, the postman, he bought, He thought, I can't do the stock market. He didn't buy the mutual fund. Remember the story, right? Mm-hmm. I bought the mutual fund as the paper boy. He's a postman and a conservative father who's trying to provide for his family and paid off his house early and all those good things. 
he looked at stocks and said, it goes up and down all over the place. I can't take that. I need a conservative investment. So he put all of his life savings in CDs at a savings and loan. Guess what happened? Uh-oh. No. 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 Savings, no. And no. savings and loan. Savings and loan went all bankrupt. Yeah. In he got bailed out with along with millions of other folks who had CDs and savings and loans when uh, – Reagan ran the Reagan era. Uh, the Federal Reserve ran it all up to about 20% on short-term rates. The savings and loan had an upside-down yield curve and just put them all out of business. Mm-hmm. Right. So what my father did, if you think about it, is he tried to avoid risk of market movement, and he took on, without thinking it through, the institutional risk of a savings and loan. He didn't think it through. There's risks with everything you have out there. I was quoted once in the LA Times in an interview saying there's risk with US Treasury bills, which is considered the risk-free rate when you do calculations and the math and sharp ratios and all the different things that you use risk-free rate for. But there is no reason why Congress or the Treasury or something could one day come along and say, you know, we're just going to go ahead. We're having a little rough time making all these payments. We're just going to forego paying the T-bill interest this month until you know we're going to use that money somewhere else there's no reason why well look even the risk it's just so deceiving to say risk-free rate i think that's the biggest uh it is error made because when you think about it it may be considered a risk-free rate from the perspective of a zero inflation government but even if you have low inflation in your own government if your purchasing power against other currencies goes down and you don't have to go like you don't have to go to the 70s to see the US dollar lose 10 15% against other currencies in the past right easily, so it just easily. you can just show them look you, you lost 15% versus what somebody in Europe could have purchased right yeah, and, i've always you know my i've talked about net worth versus net wealth and everybody hears those words and goes wow that's different what do you mean Net worth is your balance sheet. That's your assets minus liabilities. That's your net worth. Net wealth is what you can buy with that net worth. Well, what you're talking about with a dollar drops by 15% or something, your net wealth, if even if you you made 15% on your net worth, your net wealth stayed the same because the value of the dollars that it's all denominated in just declined by the same amount. So I would... You know, what you're talking about is is exactly right. And my advice would be, don't try to hide from risk. Try to find risk and attack it. Do something about it. Trade some markets that could make a a profit. Like in my own personal retirement account, and people would think, I'm retired and I'm doing this. I've got a position in um, like a Bitcoin future. I've got a, a position in uh, NASDAQ index futures, both long and short. So let's say we go through a 50% down in the stock market. Well, that strategy is going to slay it. Bitcoin, I don't even know. Bitcoin may go down in the down market, might go up in the down market. But one thing's for darn sure, it's two different things. So I'm attacking risk by diversifying extensively, and I'm putting in place models that will force me as a trader to be involved in that move. And if it's a down move in stocks, I'll be... I'll have hedges on on my longs. I'll be in cash on my sector timing. I'll be cash on my momentum uh, ETF investing. I'll be short the stock index futures. Uh, what else? Uh, 
you know, those are the types of things that are going to make me a lot of money on the downside and I'll lose certain things here and there, but I'll be making it otherwise, but I'm, I'm attacking the risk. I'm not trying to avoid it. I think that's where a lot of people, 100%. You know, like, how do you know how, how water, you- water finds its level? It's insidious. Yeah. How water will somehow get through your roof, somehow get through your foundation. It's it's a nasty uh, little animal that can just find its gravity, uh, gets gets through everything. Risk is kind of the same thing. No matter what you do to try to you know push it away a little bit, you got to attack it. You got to like master it. So things like buying puts uh, against the stock portfolio to you know make some money on the downside. Uh, things like uh, you know, trading global futures markets in both directions, trading currency markets both directions. Uh, those types of things can really help provide return streams to offset what are likely to be some stock market losses in a bear market. But what you also want is the stock market to perk up the portfolio when these other guys are not doing well. It's the point of diversification. You, you're spreading the risks. And... Uh, that's what that's Sing, singing the song of uh, stacking returns for sure. Yeah. yeah the paper we just, we just have uh, published, but the, how do you differentiate between sort of the, the similar and same type trades? You know, when, when you've got this, this array of trades on, how do you think about, you know, the, the, the beta risk that you, you might be experiencing in NASDAQ and its relationship to maybe even oil or, how do you kind of think through those uh, similar trades in order to maximize the opportunity for diversification in the, in the suite of trades you have on? Yeah, some of it is a little easier than others. It could be subtle, I think. Uh, if I'm looking at, say, putting on a trade in, uh, let me coin an example here. Um, I'm going to buy corn in the U.S. on a futures contract. And at the same time, I'm, I've got a trade going over to sell gold in the futures markets. So I'm going to go short. Would those two trades have very much to do with each other logically? Just thinking think so. it through, I mean, common sense would tell you probably not. You know, Would crude oil really care what lean hogs were doing today? Mm, there might be a little energy usage on the farm to keep the – the hog pens warm in the winter or something, but no, you know, and there might be some tractor. You might have to buy fuel for your tractor to go out in the yard and go out in the, in the farm and, uh, you know, pull in some feed. But logically over the short run, there's such different markets. You're not going to see a lot of stuff. Now, when you get into say NASDAQ versus say uh, Russell 2000, right there would be an example where you have two different indices. And today I was noticing um, that the Russell was my worst performing stock indices to the downside. And the uh, NASDAQ was actually the best performing at the same time. So there's a little difference there. And that flip-flops up frequently. And uh, so the the thing to do there is to not overload you yourself with just equity. If you're going to, I mean, at least dial in a little bit of the different levels, like small cap and large cap could easily be different. Uh, Things like NASDAQ, which is tech-oriented, versus, say, a a broad index like Russell are going to probably give you some amount of diversification. But let's face it, if if the tech (laughs) stocks uh, went into a 50% dive, 
chances are the Russell index is going to be down 40, 60, 45, 35. You know, you're not going to have a good time. Uh, they're all going to kind of tie together a little bit. So that's why I'm a big fan of seeking out as much diversification as you can possibly do. And you can use correlation coefficients if you want and try to find examples of two things that you correlate with. I mean, you can do that in an Excel spreadsheet. It's, and there's there's firms on the web that you can dial in and get free correlation coefficients on some markets. Uh, you, you, you basically want about zero. You don't want plus one because that's highly correlated. You don't want minus one because now one of your investments is always going to be losing while the other one is making. You'd like them both to be profitable if they choose to be profitable. The only way you can do that is to have zero correlation. And those are very hard to find. But uh, that's the, I guess, the uh, the holy grail if you can yeah, figure it out. That's what makes it interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Tom, over the years as you've traded these many systems, I'm curious – I've heard both sides. I've heard mm-hmm. people like actually Eric has said yeah. to me that the old fashioned trades that worked 30 years ago continue to work today. Why would you do anything differently? Have you found over the years that there are certain ways of trading that, that just got arbed out and you can't do anymore? And do you evolve your trading uh, even not even during retirement? Uh, I, my trading has evolved in retirement quite a bit for starters. I can take more risk than my clients can, uh, I can live through a, a 15 or 20% drawdown. It doesn't affect me. I've been through lots of them. And so my average client, they'd be firing me. So that's one change right there. Second change is you realize when you're an individual, even myself with, you know, uh, fairly a lot of zeros around, you know, in the back of the account, that I still am nowhere near like a billion multi-billion dollar money manager where you have to move, you know, $4 billion in and out of markets. Mm -hmm. So if I want to put one contract into a lumber trade, I can actually pull that off. That's an advantage that an individual investor like me has. And I would agree with Eric's statement with with respect to institutional money. And Mm -hmm. what he's doing with Standpoint is brilliant because it's designed to handle billions of dollars efficiently. And what I am doing personally has nothing whatsoever to do with what Eric's doing. And I, and I appreciate the differences. And he's right from the institutional standpoint in moving those sizes of assets. What you basically come up with is a currency, debt instrument, stock index account. You might be able to throw in some precious metals or something. But the, the volume is all in those markets. You could never trade a lumber Lumber won't make the top 75 markets on, uh, on liquidity measurements. Right. So basically, small investors, if they want to get into some diversification, have some advantages. And some of the old ways of trading that I've been doing since Trent's that days still do work, and I still have made some very nice returns. So, But um, I'm doing yeah. it with small amounts of money. I'd love to, because I, I want to go back to what you said a little earlier, where you first had the conversation with Jack about the new Market Wizards book, and mm. Jack remarked that your track record was was kind of uninteresting, and mm-hmm. then- I think his exact started, word was boring. Boring, sure. Yeah. 
So, and then you got started talking and, and he realized that you were actually really doing something different and really interesting. Mm-hmm. Maybe, would you mind going into that in a little more depth? What, what, how would you characterize the, the difference between how you attack the problem and how some of your contemporaries were doing it? All right. Uh, a lot of my contemporaries... Uh, all the way back, I came up with the turtles, for instance. So you had the Richard Dennis story and training the turtles. And a lot of the turtles were my competitors, Jerry Parker and those guys. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Susan Show, I think, was one of them too, maybe. Anyway, the uh, what ended up happening is I was a chemical engineer and I went into the money management business. I never was on the floor, never worked for a brokerage firm, never was with another money manager straight from chemical engineering into running a management firm. And process engineering 101 is your first chemical engineering class. And I'll sum it up this way. Chemicals come into the tank. You process the chemicals. You ship out the the fluid on the other side of the tank. You ship it by rail, by rail car, or by pipe, whatever. That's process engineering 101. Well, I look at the money management industry, and I'm starting to get involved, and I'm starting to automate, and I'm realizing that here I am bringing down satellite data off the dish. I'm processing it with my PCs, and I'm shipping out orders. And I realized that while everybody in the world seems to think of me, thanks to New Market Wizards and Jack Schwager and every all the different things that I've interviews I've done and everything, as a trader, I never thought of myself as a trader. I thought of myself as a businessman running a trading operation. And what can I do to make it more efficient? How can I get better data? How can I cross-check the data? How can I speed these programs up so we can get our afternoon runs done quicker? How can I provide my clients better transparency so they can come in anytime they want on my website and um, sign in with their password and get a, a immediate uh, reaction and on where their account is that moment, even everything real time. And my competitors did not have that kind of mentality. Their attitude was, I come in, leave me alone. I got to trade for these many hours. I can't talk to the clients during that period because I got to focus. And um, so it was a very different animal. And uh, and I I approached it as a businessman. And that's really where the big difference was. And just like any businessman would, you, you would, Ask yourself, what is your what are your clients looking for? Are they looking for this flashy, um, you know, Paul Tudor Jones type of story? Which and Paul was one of my competitors as well, and he's done very well for himself. Uh, but I'm not Paul Tudor Jones. I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night and worry about where cotton is or anything like that. I I had competitors that would have quote machines down on their side of the bed so they wouldn't wake up their wife and they get. <laughs> they could wake up in the middle of the night when they're going to the bathroom and look down at the quote machine and see where the euro was. I I get eight hours a night. I, I sleep <laughs> every night. I don't ever get up in the middle of the night and worry about anything. So I think that's where, you know, I think Jack finally figured out. Jack's sort of a caffeinated New Yorker kind of type mentality. You know, he's he uh, a couple of cups of coffee and he's raring to go and uh, that's good for him. There's a lot of people like that. Seems like in New York, uh, as I've been there over the years, but you know that type of mentality where you want to be hard charging and just keep pushing the envelopes and all that. 
it, it leads to the other side too. It leads to the emotional crash when things don't work out or you have the markets are just doing insane, stupid stuff. And, and you're looking at the red painted all over your screen and wishing you were somewhere else. And uh, in my case, those red numbers tend to be mixed with green numbers. And I'm more worried about the overall and it smooths it out a lot and it keeps you smooth. I think Jack envied the fact that I could be labeled a trader and yet still have a lifestyle that was, uh, you know, most people would say is pretty good. So can I pull on that a bit? Yep. It sounds very, uh, we're quants. We, mm-hmm. we are everything you described about process, about working on the business and yep. getting the right data, improving, putting the process together and focusing mm-hmm. on the process. Were you like, were you more of a quant back then? Like you talked about Excel sheets and computers. Like, were you programming as a, as an engineer back then? I bought a, I bought a trash 80 from Radio Shack and put it together myself. And I had the first PC from IBM coming out. I had it. I bought an IBM AT when they came out. Uh, This was all through the early eighties. 1980 was my uh, PC that I bought. And uh, yeah, I pushed those things as fast as I could and as hard as I could. And, and uh, tried to automate at minimum, like moving average type things and simple things that wouldn't overpower a little PC with <laughs> five uh, five megs of total memory or something uh, on their <laughs> disk drive. I mean, it, it was insane how what we have today in my laptop that I take with me everywhere I go, and um, it dwarfs all of the computers at Trendstat, all forty of them put together. One machine. Oh, the computers so, in your in your headset are more powerful than the computers that there you go. were running yeah. back in the eighties for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your phone can do far more <laughs> than yeah. than our uh, mini computer from Digital Equipment back in the days that took up a whole room, had air conditioning, and had five meg removable discs that were this big and about that thick, and were heavy to lift. And we went and spent the money for the optional replacement disk so you could have 10 megs of memory. Oh, wow. You couldn't have them in the computer at the same time. You had to have one or the other. But if you were (laughs) smart at partitioning your data, uh, you could actually have a little bit more. But So you had an alpha in your squats so that you could rapidly switch your memory, your your disks when the time came. Well, we always... Yeah, we always ran backups. We'd we'd run disaster days. That was well known. Uh, some of our clients thought that was humorous that we would do that, but we would operate Trendstat from basically my house, which was the backup facility. And certain people would bring computers, and other people would go to their houses, and we would do everything by phones and try to get our data in and try to send out our orders. And meanwhile a skeleton crew would be back at Trendstat running the normal operations. So the client was protected, but we were attempting to do everything on an offsite location just to test ourselves and see if we could do it. And a lot of recovery when it wasn't required by the regulators. Good on you. Exactly. So, so Tom, how did, so I guess the contrast was that the traders that were that, that your contemporaries, they were more like clicking mouses, picking up the phone, doing trades, looking at charts, you know, vi- visually making those trades and you were falling down to looking. the floor, you know, how's the floor? What's the floor say? Right. So actually <laughs> like the, what one envisions is a trader being yeah. and you were back then already automating a lot of yeah. the trading and operations. Yeah. Wow. Okay. 
we well, that zero, certainly makes a difference, right? You know, in the late years, I'd say in the 90s, um, zero decisions were made discretionarily. I mean, the only discretionary decisions were what went into the strategies and systems and all the computers. That took my entire intellectual capability and our research staff would sit there in long meetings brainstorming about do we head this way do we head that way what's the advantages what would be more robust how can we statistically determine whether this approach is going to be better than that approach but once it was uh you know went through testing and was approved and we got everything ready to go into production we turned it on and that was it it was we ran it were you using any unusual indicators that were not very common back when um, you were running with your, your well, full capabilities? I, I, I won't be able to explain this at all because it, uh, it, even to people who understand what I'm doing, it's, it kind of comes out convoluted. But I started out so far uh, before computers came in that I was on point and figure charts, if you know what those are. Yeah. You know, yes, the X's yeah. and X's yeah, and O's. Very familiar. Yeah. And I, I tried all sorts of different ways of using point and figures, and I had a problem with them because there's the size of the box is mm -hmm. one variable. So in Jack Schwager's term, degrees of restriction, which I'm very proud of him for coming up with that one because I think I've used it a lot. The more parameters you put in anything, the less robust it is. Absolutely. So in a point and figure, you got these squares. And you got to have the number of reversal squares. So you, your X's, X's, X's going up, 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 making new highs. And then how many squares do we need to go down before we'll start our row of zeros? Mm -hmm. And back and forth you go. And then, oh, people have gotten into pattern recognition, all sorts of stuff. But even if you just use simple breakouts, which is the simplest of all things, you still have these parameters that are fixed. And I always looked at the market and I said, you know, geez, you know, like I could certainly go back over the last three years and optimize it and know that it should have been a four box reversal and a 0.75 box size just by running lots of tests. Mm -hmm. But that won't be the optimal for the next year, almost assuredly. Mm -hmm. So you need a way of being able to make this flexible. So then I started looking at bar charts started coming in, computers started coming in, people started putting, you know, when, with websites and with even with software, you now have fancy graphs with bars on the screen and color, green for up, red for down. And you started looking at that and you said, wow, that's all the information. There's nothing preventing you from knowing what's going on. And I see those same top of the X's and bottom of the O's and the top of the X's and bottom of the O's, I wonder if I could apply sort of point and figure to bar charting. And I did. I created what I call, we called it Trendstat PF bar, point and figure bar. And uh, trying to explain all the little nuances of it would be a little bit more than we want to cover in a cocktail hour. But um it, it did work fairly well. It was a little more flexible. Um, it gave me, it, it always would get me in on every major move, always. Could never miss one. Uh, it would whipsaw me. Yes, all trend following models do have their whipsaws. I ran, I figure, about 33% reliable over my lifetime. So three, uh, one third of the time, I'm, I'm running a profit. Two thirds of the time, those trades are losers. So yeah. you cut your losses short, you let your gains run, you're running on our shorter term program, we are running about a three to one 
return to risk on the average profit to loss. And on the uh, max trend, I think, which is a lot longer term, there was times we were up in the almost sevens. Uh, you know, so we were, the reliability wasn't 33 there. In max trend, the reliability would drop down to like 28 or so. Mm-hmm. And we'd have like 7.5 to one return to risk ratios. When we nailed it, we nailed it really, really well. And one of those gains, hell, it would pay for the whole year. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. I, that's I think it's so old. behaviorally counterintuitive, right? right? That, that's it, why. It that that's probably the largest barrier to entry or edge, if you will, even for many institutional managers. Some of which the, the whole structure doesn't really allow for you to take eight tries to get the one try that actually hits the all the returns. Mm-hmm. So there's a. It's interesting because as we were talking, you know, what's the edge? Well. That's definitely one of them. There's a behavioral edge here that, you know, most people listening to this may not understand that you will put on more trades that are losers than are winter winners in an absolute sense. That doesn't mean your profit's not there. It just means that you're going to take a lot of these losses. They're going to be small. Exactly. In order to find the one where the the trend change is truly uh, going to make a, a big profit. A great way to think of it is, and I've said this a million times too, is every trade, the new traders get in, they're going to do their first trade and they're real excited. And, you know, is it going to be a winner? Is it going to be a loser and all that stuff? I like to think of it as I need to, I know that uh, that at least historically I've been running 33% and 67% winners and losers. I need to do a thousand trades to make those statistics come out. So this trade is just one in the next 9999 trades to get to my thousand so that I can get to my 33% and my 67% and my three to one or whatever uh, return to risks uh, on the average returns to risk. Uh, It's a statistical game and it's not, you don't want to get excited about a trade. You don't want to get down on a trade. It's just one more data point. Mm -hmm. What's been uh, fascinating for me in the last year is, we're in this, I'm in this crypto group chat. <clears throat> and so when crypto went to the moon, somebody suggested, oh, you got to listen to these guys. You know, they always get it right. Like these are traders are doing technical analysis, whatever. So I started listening to them, you know, on the side as I'm doing work in the mornings. And of course, you know, during the boom market, they're talking about how they were almost poor. A couple of the guys I met when they were like down the dumps and they found crypto in March and then they learned to trade and read all the books. They probably read your book and now they're like veteran traders and, and you got to listen to me because the guy's called the sniper. And so it goes like 12 months in a row where this guy just can't lose, right? Everything he says turns to gold. And when the market started going down, I started watching him again and you could just see the desperation that these guys faces, right? Like week after week, loss after loss, everything that they said just did not work out for two or three months. They end up going from publishing every single day on on YouTube to once a week, and you know they 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 didn't even know what like, what was going on. They couldn't understand it. They completely gave up. And of course, it's that's the that's like yes, it, you're going to be a massive trader if you are born in a bull market, right? Everybody gets hooked, well, but you got to go through that experience, right? Because indeed, it, like it, especially in crypto, you're just losing, 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 and then yeah. August. You're making all the money again, right? Yeah. It's interesting because I want to come back, Tom, to your four years in development. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and right. one of the things that I thought was, you know, were you lucky because you had to work so hard for four years and because it didn't work? Because, you know, you, differentiating between, just as Rodrigo said, someone has a, a viewpoint or a set of skills that they're going to convey to the market. And the market just happens to be harmonizing with that set of skills. Mm-hmm. And then they're mistaking what is a coincidental uh, sine wave of their <laughs> skill set and the market's personality as skill when it's simply luck. And I'm wondering, in those four years, you know, did you did you think about giving up? How did you? How were you able to come to the conclusion, in fact, that hey, my skill is actually building here? And yeah. you know, because it's really hard not to either give up because of four years of getting, you know, punched in the face or getting overconfident because you make a foray for several years and you happen to be in a bull market and you have a bullish bias or the other way around, you're in a bear market and you have a bearish bias. I think I was a pretty good student of history. So for starters, that helped me. I think a lot of people confuse bull markets with brains because they are just looking at whatever historical data happens to be on their quote platform you know, which is the last six months or last year or whatever. And, oh, yeah, I could have done here and here and here and look at all the mm-hmm. money I would have made. But they never go back to 73, 74. That doesn't exist on the quote, uh, the quote machine. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one thing. Second thing, and I'm a data cruncher, so I can see all those old bear markets. Mm-hmm. And I see them on the chart. I see a drawdown or anything on a chart. That's where I'm spending my time doing my research. How did that drawdown get created? Which markets contributed to it? Was it increasing volatility? Was it decreasing volatility? Was it sideways action? Was it any particular one trade? Maybe the data is flawed. You know, I've seen that happen. You got mm-hmm. one big down thing and you go into the data and it goes, well, this is stupid. You know, the, the low on this uh, day here is, uh, or the open is lower than the uh, the low. Mm-hmm. That can't happen. You, mm-hmm. the, the open's got to be inside the high low. Stuff yeah. like that. I've seen it all. And so that's one thing. The second thing is I would log in all my trades back in those days. Everything was by paper. And uh, so I'd say, okay, I think I should buy corn or buy hogs or whatever it is I'm doing. And here's why, you know, the point and figure chart is doing this and this. I'm going to buy this breakout here and I'm going to put my stop there. And of course, I'm way over leveraged because I don't have enough capital in my account. I'm making every rookie mistake, which then I realized when I do the math, it would be a lot better if I had more assets in my account. So I started working real hard as a chemical engineer and I got lots of promotions and lots of raises and I poured money into my accounts and got them bigger so that I could handle uh, better diversification by market, better position sizing, which I wrote the book on a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, let's uh, let's dig into that too on position size. Yeah. Like how do you how do you position size? What's well, the to max finish to finish risk? what we're yeah, doing? I'll, I'll give that yes, a second. Please. The yeah. last thing was that I was constantly seems like every year getting less loss. So the combination of studying history, the combination of learning tricks along the way that made me think this is really important and I can see mathematically where it would be important. And finally, actually seeing it come out in improving results, even though they were still losers, I was getting closer to it. And uh, with a small account, I could afford the loss. And by the time I started trading, you know, the 100,000 plus type accounts, I was well down the learning curve and successful. Now on the position sizing question you bring up, 
I always think of a, a full trading strategy as three things, at least. Uh, you could probably fine-tune it into more if you wanted, but in simple terms, you need to have a buy-sell engine of some sort. You got to say, if the following X number of things happen, I'm going to buy at this point. That's the first thing. If you don't have that, then you're, I guess, Paul Tudor Jones discretionary. It looks like cotton's going up. Let's go buy cotton. I don't know how. I'm sure he has some things that are, are a little bit more systematized than that. But in essence, you don't just wake up in the morning with no idea what the world's doing and then all of a sudden look at a quote, uh, quote machine of some sort and say, you know, I think I'll buy lumber today. It looks like, uh, you know, it was going up the last two days. And I'll just jump on that. You can do that, but it's going to be a very randomized performance, and you're going to have a lot of stressors thrown your way. It's not going to be a fun ride at all. Position sizing comes down as the second part of the puzzle. So it's where do we buy and sell, you know, buy and sell engine. How much do we buy or sell? And in all the studies I've ever done, that is more important than where do we buy or sell. You could flip a coin, do great position sizing, trail your stops, randomize across 20 different markets for 20 years of data, run 1,000-run Monte Carlo simulations, and you will tend to make money. Why? Every time you flip a coin, you know, and in the afternoon, I'm flat, flip a coin. Heads, I buy at the open. Tails, I sell at the open. You will always get, sooner or later, every major move that you want to be in on. As long as you trail the stop, you're going to exploit a lot of that move. That's going to pay for a lot of your mistakes. And uh, you're ahead of the game. Not, I would never trade that strategy. It'd, it'd right. be stupid. You could do better than that. But the point you make it with doing that is just by watching your position sizing and making sure Larry Hyatt and, and Mint back in the day, and he was in the first Market Wizards book, brilliant mind. Um, I love Larry. He was the one that, that made the statement, you know, we try to make sure our bet size is the same every time. And when you start thinking about that in math terms, you know, because I have the math background being an engineer, I read what he said a little different than a lot of people. A lot of people might say, well, he always does 100 shares of everything. Now, I, I thought it different than that. I said what he's doing is taking his risk of that trade first. So the buy-sell engine, knowing where he's going to buy, where he's going to sell, he knows the risk. How much do I buy to make my bet size on that trade the same as the next one, which has a completely different risk? I might buy less of that one, more of this one, and more in low volatility periods, less in high volatility periods. By doing that, you make every day the same, and you, you create serenity. That's that's where the name comes from, probably, because every day is sort of, I've always got the same bet size on. So does Larry. The third area, and the most important of all, beats the other two, is what we talked about throughout a lot of this discussion today, is the mental side. If you don't have your mental side screwed on straight, you are going to find a way to completely screw up those first two. You'll override it, you'll ignore it, you'll talk yourself into taking the profit too early, you'll get emotional, you'll get anxious, fearful, greedy, impetuous, whatever. I mean, and you will mess it up. So I've always said if I could be a young trader talking to myself or talking to myself now to as I was a young trader, 
I would say, you know, work on your own mind, work on your awareness, work on your discipline, work on, you know, understanding the strategic plan that you have uh, to have to try to live through with all this day-to-day stuff, and then go into position sizing, then worry about your buy-sell engine. Everybody does it the opposite way, including me. <laughs> Knowing everybody, the path I mean, the path are a little bit different. I, I'll tell you, I did I did three webinars just for a test. I got webinar, I got Zoom account and everything, and we're in. You know, there's nothing going on. COVID. You know, my wife loves to be the technician over here on the other computer. So I do one webinar. It's on, it's called Buy Sell Engines. We had to increase our Zoom account up to 130 from the 100 that I signed up for. There was so much demand for it. I then did a second one. It was called How to Size Your Positions. We got about uh, 45 people, I believe it was. The last one was going to be on uh, the mental side of trading, dealing with investment um, psychology. We got 20. Wow. I guess that tells you everything. That, That tells you everything right there. Yeah. So all these people are, they want to buy, sell, engine secret, don't realize that they could almost, not quite, flip a coin and do just as well in their Well, that's they why Bobby Axelrod has his uh, psychologist in-house, right? Yeah. He has no Bobby Axelrod in billions? Come on. I don't think that is something that can be taught, though, either, right? Like, I think that's something that you need to learn. Like... You can be taught once you realize that the mental game is important, you can be taught how to bring a better mental game. But I don't think you can be told in advance that that the mental game is of of utmost importance without living through those experiences of being in large loss positions, being over leveraged, you know, being in the trenches with the bullets flying. And, and experiencing the emotion and the pain of that, you can't know that the cognitive, sorry, the emotional game is that important until you lose because of a bad emotional game. Would you yeah, agree with that? I, yeah, I suppose. Uh, you could also, though, learn from mentors or you know read books and market wizards and hear stories like the ones we're talking about. And uh, I think you can learn from that and say, wow, he's really making a big point of this. I wonder how I can increase my awareness of what my mind goes through. Because awareness leads to discipline. If you don't know you're deviating from your strategy because you're getting greedy, if you're unaware that you're that way, you know, you're caffeinated New Yorker just running hard and, man, the screen does this, I do that. Man, just keep going. No thought of – if you're not aware that – you're making an impulsive decision, then you will have a hard time correcting that back to the strategy, you know, and getting back on plan. If if you're trying to diet and lose some weight or something and you see the chocolate cake and you just snarf it down, you know, because it tastes so good, you can't, you can't do anything else. Well, you got to have an awareness. Wait, wait, that's not, you know, I'm keto. That's not keto. Yeah, exactly. Wait, you know, that's yeah. not going to work. So, you got to have that awareness. And there's lots of books out of awareness that help you in all sorts of life. You know, it's not just trading. Awareness would be useful to understand how you are dealing with the environment around you. Uh, 24 hours, of, well, at least the, the waking hours. I, I don't know I think, that that would be very useful while you're sleeping. But Meditation um, is one of the key points you know, of that. Meditation. You meditate, you're 
you're helping yourself be aware of what your mindset is. But go ahead. A lot of people, uh, in particular, I had a, a guy once from uh, some transcendental meditation place mm -hmm. in Iowa that he lived in a town that was all TM guys. And he asked me whether I'd ever done meditation. And I said to him, very interesting, and he was profoundly floored by it. I said, I try to be aware of what I'm doing all the time. And when I'm doing stuff, I have more stimulus to be aware of. When I go to try to meditate, I'm in a quiet spot. There's really, I'm blanking my mind out. Yes, stuff bubbles up into my mind, but I'm not really hitting myself with potential stressors like you would if you're on a, you know, you got the quote thing in front of you and your markets are, you know, red, green, and all over the place. If you can then meditate or be aware of what's going on with your brain, then you got lots and lots of examples to think about and control and think about how can I deal with this? How, do, how am I aware of this? What is the corrective action? Those types of things. If you, you go into a closet someplace, dark closet, and there's no stimulus, yeah. I have so, a hard time increasing my awareness. So I've been a, a lifelong meditator, and I think it's mm -hmm. a big misconception that meditation is about trying to be as quiet as possible. Like if somebody comes in and mm -hmm. bothers you during meditation, you get pissed mm -hmm. off, mm -hmm. you're not meditating. You haven't learned a no. thing, right? Uh, in fact, open awareness for traders, I think, would be the best. It, it really is. Meditation should be, should be taught in open, loud places. And yeah. the, the goal being to be completely separated from your emotions and your thoughts. You're just watching things happen. You're watching the movie. In any way, right? You're right? watching the Absolutely. movie of your life. You're not, so you're not doing you're, anything. You're just watching a movie. If you're taught that meditation is not the 10 minutes that you do in the morning, but rather a practice that you, you need to be aware of all the time, like you said, you are constantly aware of your surroundings. I think... We, we're doing a disservice with people saying, find a quiet spot, go to your room, you know, close your door and do 10 minutes of just silence. It's not going right. to help at all. The other thing yeah. that, I, that I see you do, and I know that our traders, some of our traders do as well, and I've done my whole life, is journaling. That's a stoic practice, right? So stoicism, I think, go hand in hand with, with awareness and meditation. Yeah. Because stoicism is about, you know, before you go to bed, you journal what you did. And how well you did it and what you could do better and then what you're going to do tomorrow. And right. by doing that, it's, it's a natural practice of understanding and improving and watching yourself do the things that you do. And as a trader, you know, y y if you're not doing those things, at the very like, journaling is so important as a trader. If you're not doing that, then you are missing out on an opportunity to learn. So back to your, your uh, statement, Adam, this idea that um, people need to live it. I've played poker half my life, right? I know a lot of people that have been in the trenches playing every single day, continue to play and just bleed money. They've never learned, right? So they've been under the stressors. They continue to get stressed out. Just being under that is not enough for you to become a good poker player. None of them read books, watch themselves, you know, watch the tape after they talk to me about why they did well and what they did poorly. It requires both, right? You need mm -hmm. certainly uh, a person that has read all the books and done all the meditation, but never played poker is not mm -hmm. going to be as good as a person that's read all the books and done all the, the awareness and played poker. You need both, but certainly one without the other is unlikely to breed success, in my opinion. Right. Right. Well said. Well, that that's we've had you for more than an hour, and I think you have a golf game to get to as well. Ah, uh, we're we're reasonably flexible. Are you okay? Great. Yeah. So, um, 
do you when when you run your your seminars i think i think are you still running sort of your trading you know uh, with the seminar seminar, uh covid's been tough on us there but Mm -hmm. lawrence bensdorp was a very interesting guy and uh he loves wine Uh, he he could do a wine one with you um he's out of brazil these days and he runs a, a thing called the Trading Mastery School. And he went through the Tharp uh, Super Trader program. He's learned a lot. He's come from knowing nothing about trading, really, uh, and you know, didn't even graduate high school and you know, went through the typical you know, teen years and 20 years doing all sorts of uh, things that were fun but not necessarily career building. And uh, you know, of course, he's matured in his uh, older years. He and I got together and I said, you know, your book on multiple systems trading is still what I recommend to people to read. It's such an easy to read book on automating your stock portfolio or whatever he called that book. It's available on Amazon. And I said, that's you, that plus the way you teach at Trading Mastery School with the profiling of all the different aspects of your life like how much time are you going to spend developing a strategy how much time each day are you going to spend executing your strategy how much money do you have what skills do you have blah 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 long list right i said those two things alone are masterful parts of the trading puzzle i bring with it the book on position sizing uh i can certainly explain buy and sell engines I can get into the mental side as good as anybody because everybody knows of me as Mr. Serenity. And uh, he, we could both wrap it up with some kind of an action plan. So it, we can almost do two days of a great seminar and have a lot of fun doing it. Because he and I are friends. We get together, we'll have some wine, we'll go out to dinner and see each other for a, a weekend. And we always travel to beautiful places. We just The last one was in Miami at the... Uh, um, Mandarin Oriental, uh, which is right on the water. Gorgeous place looking over downtown's Miami lights. This next one coming up is going to be in uh, Scottsdale, my hometown. And it's going to be at the beautiful Phoenician. Uh, and we have such a beautiful venue on that one. Dinner is going to be in the sunset room looking out on an Arizona sunset. It is going to be a lot of fun. And so he and I have a lot of fun doing these. But we, we find that by keeping the group to 12 or less, we get to know everybody's names. They open up. They see. They sit next to me at lunch and ask me more personal questions. Uh, so it works that way, and uh, we don't see it as everything, any anything that we would want to go zoom and you know have a hundred people there or something. That would never work the same. But uh, we don't consider it work for us. It's kind of yeah. like we get to see each other and we have fun talking about trading for two days and. Uh, it pays for itself, covers all the costs, and we get a very nice vacation for a couple of days. Nice. Uh, yeah. So you're certainly not doing it for the money, I would imagine. So no, I don't need the money. Out of passion. And, and sometimes, so, it's, I tell you, frankly, between Lawrence's busy schedule and mine, we it, sometimes it's a little difficult to figure out when we're going to have on, on the next one. So uh, they, we don't do them every other day or anything. That's for sure. Mm. Is the one in November sold out or is it? Is it uh, we got six seat? seats taken and six to go. And oh. I just put out a social media post yesterday I did, uh, and I sent out emails last night. So uh, I haven't seen anything come in today so far, but haven't really been looking lately. So, well, so there Tom, you have it, listeners. Yeah. There you go. You get on that. Yeah. In, in your, uh, so you're retired now. I'm curious, 
a lot of people would want to do what you do, but you're, you know, you're a veteran. You, you can probably do a lot more. How often are you trading on, on the daily? Um, I have 53 or four positions last I looked. Um, seven different strategies. And it takes me exactly uh, half an hour, roughly, to get through it. So you wake up in the morning, you do your thing, and then you No, I do it in the it. afternoon. Do it in the afternoon after the markets close. Right. I put the orders in for the evening session and the next day, and I'm good for 24 hours. So the, this is, you know, for somebody that has the time, you can teach people that, that spend, you know, enjoy their days and actually make it um, – uh, make it profitable for themselves. They do it right on a once daily. That's interesting. Yeah, once daily is enough. I mean, uh, I always think of all that price data as noise and information. And your job is to get rid of the noise and ignore it and to get the information. So from a trend follower's view, to be simple, you know, market's going sideways. This is noise. We don't want to even do anything. But if it gets above here, we want to buy it. And if it gets below there, we want to sell it. You can go to cash, go short, whatever you want to do. Each strategy is different. You can design them all sorts of different ways. And you can do this noise over the, the next hour, or it could be the next week, next month, daily, lots of different time periods, lots of different markets. But the same concept holds true. So a computer can look at that and apply various maths to it to say, okay, here's normal range. And the normal range could be going this way too, up the page or this way on the screen. Yeah. Uh, so it's varying, but it's varying on an incline. But you still want to ignore all that nonsense or you're just going to be whipsawed a lot. So I'm just trying to make it easy on myself and I don't do a lot of trades. I'd say on a typical day uh, like today, perhaps, I think I saw uh, a cotton trade go over earlier. Uh, might have had an options trade, a spread trade go on. I, I might have done three or four trades out of the 50-something positions. And a lot of the, those trades might be just reversing from long to short or short to long. It's and out of the 50 strategies that you're running, are they all trend-based or are you adding other things like mean reversion, seasonality? Uh, yeah. I would say that I've got, um, well, longer term, say 21 days and beyond, uh, would be some of my sector timing with uh, ETFs and some of my futures trading, the bulk of my stuff. Then I've got about five strategies that would, uh, to a lot of people, well, no, let's see, one, two, three. got three strategies that I think would be to a lot of people, it might look counter trend, but what I'm really doing is trend following in a very short term time frame. So I'm nine days or less. So I'm picking up some of the noise, but I'm getting trends and exploiting those. And then there's uh, probably two that I think I would consider largely counter trend. But even there, I'm sort of looking for a condition overbought, oversold, and then kind of going the other direction out of it. So. You could argue that that might even be trend following, but it acts a little bit more like counter trend trading. So, so right. what happens if you're golfing at four o'clock and you'd rather, um, you know, not leave to go and, and, and put the trades in? Do you, do you have somebody that you can uh, call on to execute the markets, for you? The markets give me from, in this time zone, one o'clock in the afternoon 
all the way to 6.30 in the next morning is when a lot of the markets really truly open and start moving. And some of the commodities don't even open then. Uh, so stuff like so maybe you're trading in the morning cotton. then off of a off so of a, a late an they're all stops they're all stops well, it's a- afternoon I put the stops in they're good till cancel so if I'm out of commission for any time in the next twenty four hours I'm still good all the way through to the next close right I've got all, all everything covered so there's really nothing for me to do I might as well go out and golf yeah or work <laughs> on the landscaping or cook dinner or Go work out, or what, what? What is a realistic expectation for you know long-term returns in these types of of ventures, or is that you know? I know it's a really hard question to answer. That's but a I know really hard how question. much do you think about it? It really depends on how much um, your position sizing is. Uh, for instance, right. on risk, on my futures trading, I'm down at this point to a half of one percent of my total equity is what I have in any one position. And that's by risk. So that's from where I'm getting it to where the stop mm-hmm. is. And then I measure my volatility by a 21 day average true range. So that's the volatility of that market. And and there I'm starting my positions at 0.2% volatility. And that still gives me returns where I'm, I got days where it swings 1%, 2%, half percent, 0.6, 0.7, you know, up or down. I could right. lose that much yeah. too. That's yeah. still moving pretty fast for most people. But I'm down in very, very low risk range. Uh, and and I've got a whole bunch of other, mark, you know, strategies that are fighting. So this one's losing, that one's making. They're they're forcing the uh, get, get me towards zero. Uh, and all I'm trying to do is to create sort of a straight line up the page, you know, try to keep things yeah. stable. And uh, so is that, is that current sort of risk uh, appetite a function of you, your personality and stage in life? Or is this uh, you and your view on the markets at the moment? Um, or a combination of the two? It's a, it's a combination of uh, a little different than what you said. Uh, I would say it's my stage in life. I don't really need to make a whole lot more money. I'm very comfortable. Secondly, so but I'd like to you know cover inflation and increase my net worth. I, I'm not idiotic that way either. Um, so I'd, I don't want to put it in money markets or something and sit there right. and lose to inflation. Uh, Long term, I'd be in trouble. Uh, so... My goal is to try to make money, beat inflation, increase my net worth and wealth. But at the same time, the other side of it is uh, a concept of the geometric nature of drawdowns. If you draw down uh, 10%, you have to make 11% to to get back to break even. If you're down 50, you got to get 100% to get back to break even. So the closer I can keep it to zero drawdown all the time while still pushing my portfolio with the markets upward, the better off I am. I've, I get my returns to keep me in touch with inflation, but I don't have to compound to get back out of a hole that I've dug myself in if I get too much risk involved in it. So keeping the risk low and just keep posting some good numbers day after day is the trick, I believe. Uh, yeah. That's the way that I like to look Preaching at it. Reaching the choir. I think Eric would agree with me at standpoint too. I think he's uh, of the same mentality. If you watch the returns of that fund, it, he, it's pretty stable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Love it. Well, 90 minutes in. We're going to let you go to your 
nine holes. And, yeah, we're going to go um, and play nine holes in beautiful weather up in the mountains of Arizona. Oh, my so. God. I love it. Well, now, Tom, before we go, first of all, everybody who's out there and you made it to the end, hit that like button. Make sure you're you're uh, sharing this uh, trading wisdom with the with the rest of the world. And Tom, where can we find you? I know you're enjoying well, the ride. Well, enjoy the ride that world right after yep. my name there is yep. uh, is the website. Uh, you can find Twitter a handle. lot of different connections there. And there's all sorts of free interviews there, lists of my recommended reading books that include some of my own books, but some other people's books that I really liked over the years on trading. Uh, my hedging technique is outlined as an example of what you can do to pull together an idea and I just go ahead and show people how to do that as an example so they can maybe start inventing their own. Uh, the seminar is there if you want to sign up. I'd love to see you in Scottsdale. Uh, so everything Tom Basso is on there. Uh, but I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, MeWe, Parler, LinkedIn, Instagram. I hardly ever go on, but oh I'm, I'm on there. Um, so you can find me a lot of different places. Amazing. The tech Tom master Basso, himself. Present. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Love, Love it. it. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Really appreciate your the generosity of time and also the generosity in sharing your knowledge. And yeah. I know you do that all over the place. And it's just yeah. pretty incredible. Well, I, have, I have fun doing it. I make, meet new friends and talk about a topic I dearly love. So it's uh, it's all good. No, that's Fantastic, wonderful. Tom. Thanks for joining us today. All thank right. You. Thanks. Cue the music, Ani. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University Podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.